the medical community failed me, but my life has now turned around. Check out this review on whole package from Heart and Soil Supplements. Derek says, for three years, I've struggled with depression, anxiety, panic attacks, night sweats, lack of energy, and the inability to gain weight. I'm a 33-year-old male with severely low testosterone. I started this supplement less than a week ago, and my life has already turned around. I have energy, and most importantly, mental clarity. I'm free of depression and anxiety. The only thing I've changed in my diet is taking whole package from Heart and Soil Supplements. I look forward to seeing even more improvement as time goes on because I've already had a positive effect. The medical community failed me. They had no idea what was wrong with me. And after multiple blood tests, it came back that my testosterone was dangerously low. Thank you, Heart and Soil, for turning my life around using these supplements. So these kind of reviews make me so happy. I'm so proud of what we do at Heart and Soil, getting people organs like testicle, which is in whole package from Heart and Soil supplements in ways that are easy and convenient. Getting organs in your life is incredibly important for optimal human health. And I'm so proud to have built Heart and Soil so that more people can get the nutrition from organs and feel better in their life. You'll find us at heartandsoil.co where you can find whole package and all of our supplements, which are made from grass-fed, grass-finished organs from cows in New Zealand. They're all packaged in a glass bottle because plastic is bullshit. Find us at heartandsoil.co. Reclaim your birthright to radical health. On this week's podcast, I had the pleasure of talking to my friend, ophthalmologist, Dr. Chris Kenobi. And we talked about seed oils. It's a topic I've spoken about many times in the past, but I think it cannot be talked about enough because by my estimation and Chris's, these are probably the single greatest driver of chronic illness in humans today. Yes, greater than sugar, as you will see in this podcast. And we talk about some very interesting observational research to corroborate that assertion. And so if you do one thing, getting rid of seed oils in your diet or significantly limiting them, I believe will make a massive impact on your overall health. So that's why this conversation with Chris is critically important. That's why I think talking about seed oils is important. These are corn, canola, sunflower, safflower. So enjoy this conversation with Chris Kenobi. You will learn a ton. We dig into a lot of the science, but it's not overly scientific as some of the previous podcasts on seed oils have been. Regardless, the take home here is get rid of seed oils in your diet completely. Corn, canola, sunflower, soybean, safflower, all that kind of garbage. And as you guys know, a diet of animal foods, meat and organs, either fresh or desiccated, like we make at Heart and Soil Supplements, will be very helpful. I think fruit is probably the least toxic plant food, but that's an animal-based diet, and I've talked about that in the past. So enjoy this podcast with Chris Kenobi. Also want to give a shout out to my friends who are the sponsors of this podcast. I want to start with my friend Monsel and his company, sacredhunting.com. What's cool about sacredhunting.com is that Monsel leads hunts with both men and women where you learn the basics of how to track, stalk, kill, and field dress wild game animals, but he adds ritual and Native American components that make it a rite of passage. I've hunted with Monsel twice. These were both very enjoyable experiences. I met amazing people. Monsel's now done over 54 of these in-person hunts over the past three years. He did a survey of people in his hunts and he found that 65% of the people made major life changes afterward, new career, ending a relationship, heading in a new direction in life in a positive way, and 88 continued hunting as a spiritual practice. You will learn to hunt, but you'll also get much more of this than just hunting. It's a transformational experience. Again, women are welcome. And if you mention to Monsel that you know me or that you listen to this podcast, you don't have to know me. You're all my friends anyway. You can tell them you know me. You get $250 off your trip by mentioning my name. So go to sacredhunting.com, fill out the two-minute application, and set up an exploratory call. I also want to give a shout out to my friends at merrickhealth.com. That's M-A-R-E-K health.com. Merrick Health is the premium telehealth platform, and I love telehealth 
because it means you don't have to go to a doctor and you can select your physician so they align with your values. A lot of you are interested in hormone optimization and prevention, and you can order your own blood work through Merrick Health and you can work with one of their providers to optimize your blood work, supplement, nutrient recommendations, all that kind of stuff. So it's very different than mainstream medicine. I think it's changing this kind of thing for the better. It's very frustrating for me when people go to their doctor and want a fasting insulin or a sex hormone binding globulin or a free testosterone, and they can't even get it because their doctor won't order it for them. So there's now also a Carnivore MD panel at Merrick that I designed with them. It's as low as $243, and it has what I believe to be the most important labs without any of the fluff. It's not everything you'd want to get, but it's the most important ones if budget is important for you and getting your labs is a factor, which I think it should be. Prioritizing knowing what's going on with your hormones is critical. So check them out, MerrickHealth.com. You go to front slash fundamental dash health dash collection, or you go to MerrickHealth.com, use the code Paul for 10% off your first lab order of whatever labs you want. Again, it's Merrick Health, M-A-R-E-K health.com. Also want to give a shout out to my friends at shirttailcreekfarm.com. They're on Instagram at shirttailcreekfarm. They're in Austin. They're outside of Austin. They're in Brenham, Texas, and they're a regenerative farm. They are doing 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, pasture-raised pork, pasture-raised chicken, corn and soy-free, pasture-raised eggs. They operate with an emphasis on improving the land and environment while producing unadulterated, nutrient-dense food in their community. Sam and Carolyn eat an animal-based diet, and I've seen them at the farmer's markets in Austin. You can find them again at shirttailcreekfarm.com or on Instagram at shirttailcreekfarm. You can use the code CARNIVOREMD20 to get $20 off your first order. Shirttail Creek Farm, they offer flat rate shipping in the lower 48 states, and they have a bunch of great bundles or a la carte options on their site. You can find them again, shirttailcreekfarm.com, and CARNIVOREMD20 gets you $20 off your first order with Shirttail Creek. I am happy to support regenerative farms like Shirttail Creek. Last but not least, I want to give a shout out to my friends at Juve, J-O-O-V-V.com. Juve are the innovators when it comes to red light. They were really the first people in the space. They made it portable and they've increased the quality of their products over time immensely. Now they're in their third version and it's amazing. So many people are focused on improving their health and getting light is so critical to this process. You've probably heard me talk about Juve before. I use my device daily to support healthy cellular function. Getting red light is critical. You can get it from the sun, but a lot of us aren't out in the sun enough. So after a hard day of surfing or if I'm sore from skating, getting in front of the red light at night really helps me relax. It helps me with muscle recovery, I think. I think it also helps with skin. There's definitely evidence that it improves testosterone in lab animals and it definitely helps with sleep. So get some red light in your life. Check out the Juves at juve.com, J-O-O-V-V.com. Juve is offering all my listeners an exclusive discount on their first order. Again, J-O-O-V-V.com front slash Paul for your qualifying order. Pick up a Juve today. Some exclusions do apply. That's it. On to the podcast, guys. Enjoy this one with Chris Kenobi. Chris Kenobi, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate you having me on. It's a pleasure. Dr. Chris Kenobi, my mistake. Doctor. Welcome, doctor. <laughs> so I don't let anybody I mean, call me doctor, Paul. <laughs> We've done a couple of podcasts together, but for people that aren't familiar with your background, um, just can you introduce yourself and your background? And then we'll let's just jump into some ophthalmology stuff in the, from the start. Okay, sure. So I'm a physician, ophthalmologist, um, had a full career in ophthalmology, and um, I am now a nutrition researcher as of the past about eight years. I left practice in 2015 to pursue um, 
the hypothesis that processed food and vegetable oils are the drivers of age-related macular degeneration, AMD, which is the leading cause of irreversible vision loss and blindness in people over the age of 50 worldwide. And so I, I went down that path, uh, Paul, um, you know, published a paper, went public with that in 2016 and 2017, started a foundation. And then by 2018, 2019, I just was so convinced that I was seeing so much evidence that the vegetable oils are the primary drivers of obesity, overweight, and virtually all chronic disease. And I just didn't feel it was being covered very well. So I, so I began to investigate that um, really in 2018 and went public with that in 2019. That's kind of where I've been ever since and just published a book, uh, a new book. It's called uh, The Ancestral Diet Revolution. Just came out last week. Um, there we go. There's a picture of it Paul's holding up. And um, so that so that's basically my story in a nutshell. So this is really interesting to me, Chris, because as an ophthalmologist, I think the first question is, what is an ophthalmologist, somebody that spent, how many years were you in practice? 25, 30? Yeah, 20, 25. How, how does an ophthalmologist get interested in seed oils? And I think the connection there is this condition macular degeneration. So let's talk about macular degeneration for people. My father just had surgery on his, uh, on his, uh, I guess his lenses for a cataracts, which is not the same as macular degeneration, but when people's eyes go, it significantly affects our quality of life. So you mentioned something, you mentioned that age-related macular degeneration, AMD, is the leading cause of blindness or reversible blindness in adults over the age of 50. So it's a big deal in the world. Right. Right. And, you know, just so people are aware, um, you know, many people really believe that that I my, my path through all this was that I, I went down the path of trying to figure out what the cause of macular degeneration was and then went broad and applied that to chronic disease. And uh, that might be a, a, a more uh, romantic story, if it were. <laughs> But that's really not what happened. You know, I, um, in 2013, when I read Weston Price's research, I understood that it was mostly, you know, refined flours, refined sugars, vegetable oils, he included vegetable fats, he called them, as part of the processed foods driving all the chronic disease. So I was convinced by 2013 that, that processed foods and sugars and vegetable oils were a big, you know, they were the problem with chronic disease. And so then I applied that, that principle to look at macular degeneration. And that's what we did. So I, you know, I, I investigated that for about a year and a half while I was still in practice. And I was so convinced that that hypothesis held water that I had left my practice to pursue this full time because I knew it would probably take me, you know, six, six, seven years or so to figure that out if that, if, if, if I was in practice. And but instead, well, on a full-time basis, it took me about a year, me and some colleague researchers, about a year and a half. And we investigated that data, looked at sugar and vegetable oil consumption versus macular degeneration in 25 nations. And Paul, the data, which I published in the scientific papers, the first time that you know this has ever been done, that, that this hypothesis was, um, was proposed, 
was from our paper in November 2017, published in Medical Hypotheses. And in every single country, you know, the big driver, it's clear, is vegetable oils. And in one of those countries, one of the things that bothered me about the research initially was the fact that in one of the Pacific Island nations, Kiribati, the sugar consumption was really high, or, you know, at least moderately high by the world standards. And but their vegetable oil consumption was extremely low, practically zero, and they had virtually no macro degeneration. And so this bothered me at first because I thought, you know, sugar has to be driving this. And, and, and it was one of those moments I thought, I don't want to publish this research, this, this, that, that piece of the, I'm like, I want to cherry pick this data and we'll pre present 24 of the nations and leave out the one. And then the more I thought about it, I kept thinking, well, no, wait a minute. You know, the problem is, is maybe, maybe sugars are all, okay. you know, maybe they're not the problem. Maybe it's the vegetable oils. And then eventually, and I just kept investigating and we published all the data and I published a book on this and I started a nonprofit foundation. And, and then, as I said, then I began just looking at this at more and more and more detail in regards to obesity, diabetes, metabolic syndrome. Alzheimer's, you name it. I'm interested. Like what, what is the, what, what are the mechanisms? What's the data? And as you can tell from my book and you've seen what I've done before, I'm just, a, I'm a data junkie. And so I, I look at all this data and, and try to make sense of it. And so with that, yeah, uh, uh, you know, with that background, that's how I got into uh, investigating vegetable oils essentially as a big driver of all this disease. And I, go through. Know, I want to know this stuff just like you do, Paul. And just like most people, I want to know it for myself, you know, for my daughter, my family, um, you know, uh, and, and then for the world. So, I mean, I started this very, you know, very selfishly to figure out, you know, my, you know, my, what's good for me. Right. And then I, and then it's, all, you know, then I'm, here's where I am, you know, 12, years later, essentially. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that you're doing this work. It's something that it's been fun to have conversations with you and share information over the years. And so I think that we will go through some of that data and, and the associations are compelling. What's tricky about seed oils, and they're often called vegetable oils, perhaps more accurately called seed oils. And what we're talking about, if people are new to this podcast or new to this concept, are oils from the seeds of plants, things like corn oil, canola oil, safflower, soybeans, sunflower oils, uh, what other oils, peanut oil, grape seed oil. These are the common oils with canola, sunflower, and probably soybean being the most commonly used, perhaps not in that order. Corn is in there as well. And I would think palm, palm oil is basically a seed oil as well because of the way that it's refined, bleached, and deodorized, perhaps. So these are interesting foods, if you want to call them that in parentheses, to come into the human diet. And we've talked about this on a previous podcast in which you talked about the history of all of this. These are foods or substances, perhaps compounds that humans were really never in contact with before the last 100 years. And so there, there are some really compelling associations between the inclusion of these compounds, these substances, which were previously used as machine lubricants in the late 1800s, something I've talked about in the past, and, and the increased incidence of disease in humans over the last 100 years. Because what is difficult to debate in any way, shape, or form is that humans have gotten much less healthy in the last 100 years. So I think that as physicians, 
all physicians, you and me both especially, are asking this question, what the heck is driving chronic illness? And there are a lot of possibilities, but I think seed oils are certainly one thing to consider. And as you said, age-related macular degeneration, something that is associated with your specialty ophthalmology, has also gone through the roof. So let's just start there briefly, if you can describe what macular degeneration is and what you see as the best evidence to link seed oil consumption with macular degeneration. And then I want to talk about, um, what is it called? Carboxyethylpyrrole, because I'd never heard about this before reading your book. And that is very interesting in the retinal pigmented epithelium. Okay. Yeah. So if you look at the, uh, the history of uh, age-related macular degeneration, AMD, um, this is one of the first things I did uh, um, because obviously it, if, uh, you know, if this disease is driven by processed foods, then when we didn't have any processed foods or they were extremely low, AMD should have been rare. And indeed, that's what I found. And this literally took months of research. Um, but, but I ultimately determined that um, there were no more than about 50 cases of macular degeneration in all the world's literature between 1851, when, when, when the retina was first visible because of invention of the ophthalmoscope, and 1930, 1920 or 30. In, in that roughly 80-year period, there were no more than 50 cases of AMD in the, all the world's literature. And most all of those came in the 20th century. There was just a handful of cases literally in the 19th century. And the ophthalmologists were describing that there was immense evidence that they were looking at the retina and they had photographs and images and drawings and all that, but they weren't, there weren't any images of macro degeneration in the 19th century at all. What do you think is the best evidence that we have that vegetable arrows are, are driving this? Yeah. Okay. So the best evidence, and you know, we um, so we have a paper that's uh, that's slated to be published, I hope, um, and uh, another paper. And in this paper, we've taken um, data from um, twenty nations, and we plotted that versus seed oil, average seed oil consumption for a period of 25 or more years. So if we didn't have 25 or more years data, we weren't plotting those two together. And this is in the book. Um, but, but anyway, and then, and then we analyzed that data to look at you know, the correlation and using the R Pearson correlation coefficient, the, the, the number is 0.78. So that's a very high correlation between vegetable oil consumption and macular degeneration. Now, you know, then we, if we get into the nitty gritty detail, that's extremely complicated. Um, but I can talk about some of that if, if you want to. Get, get nitty gritty. I think we got to get scientific. Like, yeah, maybe just before we get into that, just tell people what macular degeneration is. You mentioned the retina, the back of the eye, but a lot of people don't even know what the macula is. And it's something that I didn't know before I went to medical school either. Right. Okay, so the macula is the, is the central retina. It accounts for about our central 10 degrees of vision. And just as it, the, the name AMD implies, this is a degenerative disorder. And what we see in macular degeneration is many things, but we see mainly we see um, loss of retinal pigment epithelial cells. And these are the cells that support the photoreceptors. The photoreceptors are the rods and cones. And that's what ultimately is required is to see. So, so we have, you know, we have loss of the RPE of the retinal pigment epithelial cells, 
Each one of those cells supports about 30 photoreceptors. Neither of these are regenerative. All right. So if you lose them, they're gone forever. I think of it like having a stroke or having a heart attack. You know, once those neurons or once those muscle cells are gone, you know, they're, they're gone. They're replaced by a scar. You know, they're gone forever. So you have that. You have this damage to the retinal pigment, retinal pigment epithelium. You have thickening of Brooks membrane, which separates the blood supply, um, the choriocapillaris. So the separator between that choriocapillaris and the retinal pigment epithelium is the Brooks membrane. And Brooks membrane thickens and calcifies in a way that is analogous to exactly what we see in an atherosclerotic plaque, or they're very, very similar. And I'm not the only one that's making this comparison. This was made by others, not me. Um, so, you, so you have that going on. And so this creates a barrier. Well, this is the barrier where there, where you know, there's nutrients exchanged between choriocapillaris, the vascular supply, and the retina proper, right? So you have, you have that going on. And then you have all these other, many, many other factors. Like all the, vi the fat-soluble vitamins are involved. So if you have deficiencies of vitamins A, D, K2, all of those are either drivers or hypothesized to be drivers. We're the only ones that have hypothesized that K2 is an issue because Brooks membrane actually, as I mentioned, it calcifies much like you get calcification in coronary arteries with heart disease. You get calcification in Brooks membrane as the, 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 the disease progresses. But, but ultimately, what people need to know is that, you know, this, th these mechanisms all come together um, in, in a unified way to produce damage to the retinal pigment epithelium that then atrophies or dies, these cells die, and we lose those. And that's geographic AMD or atrophic AMD. And that's the dry form of the disease. And then Brooks membrane can actually crack and break. And vessels can grow up through Brooks membrane underneath the retina, bleed, and this is wet AMD. And this is where you have this disastrous loss of vision. But either way, you can end up blind. And, you know, so we go back to that data. I mentioned that there is, you know, no more than 50 cases of AMD in all the world's literature between 1851 and 1930. Well, by 2020, 196 million people were affected with AMD. And by 2040, it's expected to be 288 million. And by 2006, 14 million people, the World Health Organization has shown, were either, you know, had severe vision loss or blindness bilaterally. So in other words, these are people that are, for the better part, blind, uh, either bilaterally blind or bilaterally severely vision impaired. 14 million people, that's an, that's an extraordinary number. When you think about, well, we didn't have any more than 50 cases of AMD for a period in history of 80 years, right? So all this connects together. And now it's not just vegetable oils, but it's all the processed foods together, just like all these other chronic diseases in my view. Yeah, I want to show this graph from your book. This is the graph showing the correlation between the incidence or the prevalence of age-related macular degeneration on the y-axis and the, um, the average polyunsaturated oil consumption in grams per day on the x-axis. And um, again, the Pearson correlation coefficient is 0.78, which is a pretty strong correlation. And the outliers tend to be, I would say, above the, the 
line of best fit, Chris, rather than below the line of best fit. And why I'm pointing that out is because um, the it, there are countries where uh, there is increased prevalence of age-related macular degeneration, um, but there are very few countries where there is less, I would say, there, there are more countries where there's more age-related macular degeneration than you would expect, rather than countries where there's less age-related macular degeneration for any given amount of polyunsaturated fat consumption. So that's a very compelling correlation. And there are other correlations. I've spoken about other studies. We can, I'll put a couple of studies on the screen on YouTube for people here that I'll get after the podcast. There are other studies looking at this correlation and showing very strong correlations in more specifically studied populations in the United States. Um, so this correlation between seed oil consumption and macular degeneration is very strong and is compelling. It, it certainly begs the, it's, it's a very strong hypothesis. Now, these are all correlations. There's no, there's no data. No one's ever done a study where they gave people seed oils and looked for macular degeneration. This would be a very difficult study to do. But I think there are some compelling mechanisms that you discuss in the books. And uh, in the book, and I was wondering if you could talk about carboxymethylpyrrole um, or carboxyethylpyrrole, excuse me, uh, because this is really interesting. This is one of these breakdown products of linoleic acid. This is, so there's linoleic acid, which I'll just explain for people, is an 18-carbon omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid. When we say polyunsaturated fatty acid, that's a mouthful. We'll often abbreviate that PUFA or P-U-F-A. And of those PUFAs, the one we think about the most is linoleic acid. So when we're looking at the percent of linoleic acid, not to be confused with linolenic acid or more specifically alpha linolenic acid, which is an omega-3, we're talking about omega-6 linoleic acid. We are looking at the percentages of that fatty acid in the oils of certain seeds. And we'll talk about different seed oils and how much linoleic acid they have later in the podcast. But this linoleic acid is a very unstable fatty acid. That's not really debated. That's an organic chemist's proof. You know, you can prove that with organic chemistry, that the more double bonds a molecule has, the more unsaturated a fat molecule is. And when there are more double bonds and the molecule is more unsaturated, then you have more instability at the level of electrons attacking these double bonds, kind of organic chemistry complexities. And so these, this linoleic acid can break down into products, and we call these oxlams or oxidative products of linoleic acid metabolism. I've spoken about 4-HNE on a previous podcast with Tucker Goodrich and Jeff Knobs, but I'd never heard of this carboxyethylpyrrole until I read your book. So what is CPE? It's one of these breakdown products, and why is it so interesting, Chris? Yeah, so really there's, um, now I call these um, advanced lipid oxidation end products, these products that come from linoleic acid that are, are initially, um, you know, converted to even physiologically in the body or pathophysiologically, we might say, in the body, they're, they're, the linoleic acid reacts with um, radicals like hydroxyl radicals, for example, um, and it's, and it, and the, the first product of that is lipid hydroperoxides, which are very, un, they're very unstable and they break down quickly. So they don't really cause damage, but they break down into these advanced lipid oxidation end products or ALs, I call them. And these are, these are chemicals like 4-HNE that you just mentioned, um, malondialdehyde or MDA, carboxyethyl, carboxyethylpyrrole, acrolene. Um, and then you have the, the, what I call the oxlams, 9 and 13 HODE. Um, that's hydroxyoctide, decadienoic acid. But anyway, and then there's literally hundreds of others, Paul's and that, Paul. And that's the reason I wanted to point this out is that I, I compare this to like cigarette smoking, 
Now, when you smoke, you know, you, when tobacco is burned, you create more than 6,000 chemicals. And when you consume vegetable oils, you ultimately have breakdown products that, that end up with hundreds of chemicals. So these few that we're naming, these are just the ones that we know that are associated with a lot of damage. And they certainly are. But with regard to carboxyethylpyrrole and um, macrity generation, first of all, I, I don't know that this is a major player, Paul, but it is a player. Like I said, and there's many, many, many arrows all coming together, you know, with with regard to macrity generation, but with carboxyethylpyrrole, we actually know that um, this molecule is creating autoimmunity in some people, and so so this breakdown product um, carboxyethylpyrrole then can cause um, SEP. We've shortened that to SEP. SEP related antibodies, and so those antibodies then can cross react with um, antigens in the retina, and this may be part of macrity generation. So there it is. That's in it in a nutshell. And CEP is CEP. That's carboxyethylpyrrole. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's, it's interesting to me with these breakdown products of linoleic acid, whether we're talking about 4-HNE, 9 and 13-HODE, these names are very esoteric, acrolein, which I want to talk about in a moment, carboxyethylpyrrole, CEP, malondialdehyde. Now, these at least in the case of 4-HNE, that doesn't come from anywhere except the breakdown of linoleic acid. And so this is a very compelling argument to me. Is there anywhere else in the body that you would get CEP from? Is carboxyethylpyrrole coming from anywhere else in the human body? Or is this exclusively from the breakdown of linoleic acid? To my knowledge, it's exclusively from breakdown of LA. And what's interesting about linoleic acid, backstory for people if they're not familiar, is that in the human body, we accumulate polyunsaturated fatty acids. We store these for better or for worse, <laughs> often for worse, because I think that we are in an evolutionary situation where we're getting too much of them. But humans can interconvert saturated fats and monounsaturated fats, and our body will make saturated fats, the fats that are supposed to be bad for us. We're going to talk about saturated fats and the liver later in this podcast, but our body makes saturated fats. And our body can interconvert those saturated fats with monounsaturated fats. And just so people understand, saturated fats are a string of carbon molecules, essentially with a, with a you know, a, a, like a, a different molecule on the end. And all those carbon molecules are bound by single bonds. Uh, an unsaturation is a double bond. So a saturated fat is all single bonds between the carbons in the fatty acid tail. And so our body can put one unsaturation into a saturated fat to make a monounsaturated fat. And there are multiple monounsaturated fats that are used in the human body for signaling and membranes. But our body doesn't make polyunsaturated fats that well. It has to start with, and it has to start with raw materials. We can't introduce multiple double bonds into a molecule. So we need some polyunsaturated fats. But I think that the hypothesis that you and I are both suggesting is that evolutionarily, We've, we are now getting increased amounts of these polyunsaturated fats and past a certain threshold, they become problematic for humans. They're just not that available in, quote, nature. Hunter-gatherers, and this is something that you pointed out to me, don't have a lot of polyunsaturated fats in their diet because they're really only present in nature in nuts, which are seasonal. And as we know, our hunter-gatherer ancestors don't eat a lot of nuts. So maybe you can talk a little bit. I want to come back to the breakdown products in a moment, but this is probably a good moment for you to talk to us a little bit about what you've learned about 
how much linoleic acid is in our diet today as westernized humans versus what we know about the amount of linoleic acid in our ancestors, whether it's extrapolated from indigenous people who are currently living or anthropology, people like the Hadza or other indigenous groups. So that's a very interesting distinction for people to understand. And the whole framework of this is that when we have excess amounts of polyunsaturated fats, they accumulate in the human body. And we'll talk about this also in the podcast. It takes us probably two plus years to get rid of them based on our physiology. Right. So if we look at um, omega-6 linoleic acid in the American diet through history, this is, I think, is a critically important because we know that as you and I have talked about and many others have talked about that, for example, coronary heart disease was virtually unknown in the 19th century. Alzheimer's disease was unknown. Macular degeneration was extraordinarily rare. Um, you know, dementia was, uh, was unknown unless it came from syphilis. Um, you know, obesity was 1.2% in men age 18 to 80. So what were we not consuming? And the answer is, is that, well, we had extraordinarily low levels of omega-6 linoleic acid because we didn't have any seed oils in the diet until right after the American Civil War, beginning about 1866, we got cotton seed oil. That was the first seed oil that Americans had ever seen, and they weren't really ready to accept it. But we, but what we did was, let's get back, you know, staying with the omega-6 theme, is that we modeled the diet of Americans in 1865. And you know, you know, you could do this too. This is not that hard to do when you when you have things to help you, like chronometer, and you know about the the amount of LA in grass-fed meats and milk, you know, milk and um, purely ancestrally raised animals and all that. So we looked at this 1865 Americans, and they were consuming about 2.2 to 2.6 grams of LA per day. Now in the book, um, I use the figure 2.2 grams, which is about 1%, but it might be 1.1%. We're splitting hairs here, okay? In terms of the omega-6 linoleic acid consumption in 1865. All right, at that point, we had no vegetable oils. We were phenomenally healthy. 1909. We know it's the next data available comes from um, Tanya Blasbog. And we know that by then we had a little bit of cottonseed oil and we had soybean oil. We had about nine grams of vegetable oils per day. And our total LA consumption had doubled. There's the graph. So we were at 2.4 grams of omega-6 linoleic acid in 1909. That's 2.23% of consumption, right? To of total calories. And if you go clear to 1999, you can see that we're just increasing, increasing with our vegetable oil consumption during this time. In 1999, we're at 18 grams of LA. That's 7.21% of, of total energy. And then by 2008, we're at 11.8% of our total calories, 29 grams a day of omega-6 linoleic acid alone. So we went from 2.4 grams or 1.1% in 1865 to 29 grams or 11.8% of calories in 2008. Now, if you look at, I've looked at all these, you know, uh, ancestrally living populations, like the, and I'm, so let me name them, just a, a, several. So like the Maasai warriors who consume milk, meat, and blood, and their diet is 66% animal fat, all coming mostly from milk, their diet is 1.7% omega-6 linoleic acid. Um, I looked at the Tokelauans, who had a 50% saturated fat diet. Their diet is coconut, fish, starchy tubers, and fruit. Their, their, their consumption 
though, was even with a 50% saturated fat diet and 56% total fat diet, their consumption of omega-6 linoleic acid, 1.6% of their diet. I looked at the Papua New Guineans of Tucansenta, who had a diet of more than 90% carbohydrate, all based on almost all they eat is sweet potatoes, and they occasionally would feast on pork and chicken. Um, their diet, which is more than 94% uh, carbohydrate and 3% fat, was uh, 0.6% omega-6 linoleic acid. It's similar situation for the Catavans, for um, uh, any ancestral population you want to look at. They're all less than about 2% if they're on their native traditional diet, meaning they have no seed oils, they have no animals raised on consuming corn and soy that can raise their omega-6, and they're not consuming nuts and seeds, right? Because virtually almost no populations do. So, so that, that's where we should be, is under 2% of our, of our omega-6 consumption as linoleic acid. And, you know, and uh, again, that's what I have believed you know, for the past four years. Um, and there's further evidence for this, but I won't go into that. No, but we can just say that overall, westernized populations are anywhere from about 6% to 12% omega-6 linoleic acid. And as Paul already alluded to, so we accumulate the omega-6 in our, in our fat, in, our, in, our, in other words, in our body fat, our adipose. We accumulate that in our cell membranes, in our mitochondrial membranes, and overall, this sets up an environment that's pro-oxidative, pro-inflammatory, toxic, and nutrient deficient. And so here, Paul has pulled up um, a graph where we're looking at, um, I think we should go to the previous one to this one, Paul, if we could for a second. Yeah, we go. So this is a graph looking at the percent of LA, linoleic acid, in our adipose um, versus the year. Now, this graph was... Uh, prepared and published by Stefan Guillenet back in 2015, I think. And this represents 38 studies of the omega-6 linoleic acid in the body fat of Americans. And you can see that it averaged 9.1% in 1959 um, when we were a lot healthier, and it was at 21.5% in 2008. Um, so that's collation of 37 studies. And again, so so what I would submit is the higher your linoleic acid goes, you know, the, the greater your risk. You should, we should not be over. I'm absolutely convinced that ancestral levels of omega-6 linoleic acid would be um, about 3%, maybe 3.2%, possibly up to 4%. But we should never be over 4% omega-6 linoleic acid in our body fat and probably under 3 um, And so roughly, and, and if you look at the data, whatever you consume in your food over, you know, if, if you average that out over a three-year period, you will approximately double that amount of LA in, in your body fat. Now, that's a rough estimate, and it doesn't work at, at the very lower end, and it may not work at the very high end, So um, because there's probably threshold effects on both ends. But as a general rule, if you consume, like Americans, when we're consuming in 2008, 11.8% omega-6 linoleic acid in our diet, our body fat, 21.5% omega-6 linoleic acid, right? It approximately doubles. And so it's a good rule of thumb. And, and as you've mentioned, so the omega-6 linoleic acid, the half-life in our body fat is roughly 600 to 680 days. 
the total turnover in one study was shown that you can turn over all of your body fat in three years. So this is pretty good news. I mean, it's a long target, but you know, but it's good news that it doesn't take eight or 10 years necessarily to get back to ancestral levels. So if, if you have 21.5% of your body fat as omega-6 linoleic acid today, and you go on a completely ancestral diet, and you get your omega-6 consumption down to 1%, um, and for the next three years, in three years, you should theoretically be down to around um, you know, 3% or less uh, omega-6 linoleic acid in your body fat. That's a, that is, to me, that's the best possible thing that you can do for yourself. And just so people have some actionable steps here, the most important thing would be to eliminate seed oils from your diet. And we'll talk more in this podcast about mechanisms and evidence that these are harmful for humans. We've pretty much made the case of a correlation so far and an evolutionary inconsistency in their consumption. But I want to talk about a few more pieces of evidence that point to their their very problematic nature for humans. We talked about the breakdown products, specifically carboxyethylpyrrole, but there are others. And so eliminating the seed oils from your diet is, is probably the most important first step. These are things, corn oil, canola oil, sunflower, safflower, soybean, et cetera. This is why I do this content on social media. And I say, hey, look, so many things in the grocery store that are labeled as healthy or vegan or plant-based or low-fat maybe not the low fat stuff so much, but so many of these things in the grocery store are going to have seed oils in them. They are the predominant oil in the food supply because they're cheap. They have some sort of a preservative effect. And so if you're not reading the labels on your food, you are almost certainly getting seed oils. When you go to restaurants, this is the next level for people who want to go to the next level. You need to know what your food is cooked in. A lot of things that are sauteed or cooked on in pans are going to be cooked in seed oils. A lot of restaurants are under the impression that people want canola oil. As I've spoken about in the past, McDonald's cooks their French fries in, in a series of oils. McDonald's French fries are actually cooked in 19. They have 19 ingredients. And I'm going to talk about French fries in a moment with acrolein, but they're cooked in four different types of seed oils, corn, canola, soybean, and partially hydrogenated soybean oil. So McDonald's French fries are cooked in four different seed oils. Five Guys fries are cooked in peanut oil. There are no French fries on the market other than maybe uh, an amazing burger place here or there that has grass-fed burgers. It's going to cook their potatoes in tallow. I do have some reservations about oxalates and potatoes. That's a whole separate podcast, lectins in general. But in terms of what you're cooking your potatoes in, if you absolutely must eat French fries, tallow is the thing to do it in. And almost nowhere will do that. There are a few places that do. But even when I was in Arizona, I went to Smash Burger. And they told me when I asked, they were cooked in tallow. And we did some research and they're actually cooked in a combination of tallow and canola oil. So they weren't totally forthcoming. And I think the woman who told me just didn't know the answer, but it's, it's hard to find French fries cooking this stuff. So heating oils, especially seed oils, is problematic for humans. Know what your food is cooked in at the restaurant. I've done content around this. If you ask restaurants, they will either avoid the seed oils or they'll cook in something else for you, preferably butter. That's going to be a big step in the right direction, uh, but you need to know where it's happening. Then, you know, olive oil has about 15% linoleic acid, as does avocado oil, which is why I'm not a fan of those oils. So they're better than seed oils, which will go anywhere from 25 to 65% linoleic acid, but they're still more than tallow and butter, which are one to 2% linoleic acid in tallow and butter. I'm much more a fan of animal fats. If you've done all those things, getting rid of nuts in your diet will significantly decrease your consumption of linoleic acid. But, and then the, the last thing, which is actually kind of an interesting thing, and then I'll throw it back to you, Chris, in a moment, is that a lot of mainstream eggs are produced 
with diets of corn and soy. And that increases the amount of linoleic acid in those eggs. And you actually have data about this in your book, which I thought was really cool. Um, our friends, uh, Sarah and Ashley Armstrong have a farm called Angel Acres, and they've actually done research on the linoleic acid content of the yolks in their eggs. And they're raising their chickens very intentionally with a diet that's low in high linoleic acid grains. And they can show that if you feed a chicken different foods, you can reduce the amount of linoleic acid in the egg yolks. So when I did a recent post on Instagram about my fridge tour, actually, I think it was a YouTube video. People said, where are the eggs in your fridge? How could you not eat eggs? And the main reason I don't eat eggs is because I don't raise my own chickens. And I don't want to be eating eggs that are fed corn or soy or any grains that are high in linoleic acid. I'm, I, I, I'm eating liver and I'm eating desiccated liver from hardened soil in, in our supplements. And so I don't see a unique need for an egg yolk if I'm eating liver. And I want egg yolks from chickens that are fed bugs and meat and you know kitchen scraps, which will mostly be fruit because I don't eat vegetables. So this is, I just want to give people that path. And then we threw out a couple of numbers there that are a little complex for people, but I think the goal is to have the lowest amount of linoleic acid in your diet possible. And when I do my chronometer with my daily diet, it's around 1.3 or 1.4% of my calories are coming from linoleic acid. And I think that, what would you say is a goal, Chris? 3% linoleic acid in your diet is the threshold or 2.5. People can put their diet into chronometer and see how much linoleic acid. People are not going to be able to measure the linoleic acid in their adipose tissue. That's, that's just difficult for anyone. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that the, the goal would be, be under 2% of your calories as omega-6 linoleic acid. And so on a, if you're consuming 2,250 calories a day, let's say that comes out to almost precisely five grams of linoleic acid. But, you know, I mean, when you think about the typical person today on an average standard American diet as of 2008, and it may be higher now, but it's probably the real, relatively the same, 29 grams a day, right? So if you go, if you get anywhere close to five grams of LA per day, you're, you're, probably going to be way better off than you than you were but that yeah that definitely would be the goal and you have to look at all these things like the eggs and i do consume eggs uh, and the i would not like you paul i wouldn't consume any eggs that are coming from chickens that are consuming corn and soy because that will drive their la up a lot and you know la gets concentrated um in eggs so you can you can get too much uh you can drive your your uh, omega-6 consumption, I think too high pretty quickly. If you're consuming four, you know, like four eggs a day that are CAFO raised, you'll get four, around four or five times more LA than you would if with these ancestral uh, eggs. The number that sticks in my head, and I don't have this in front of me, but I think in the um, angel acres eggs that are, you know, they're not fed corn or soy um, and they're, you know, they're out on pasture, they're, I think they had 0.17 grams of LA per egg. So if I remember right, so that's about, so what would that be? Uh, you're pushing, you know, 0.7 grams ballpark um, in four eggs. So even if you ate four eggs a day, that's only 0.7 grams of your the total five grams that you're trying to get in a day. So that, again, that, but you can, you know, like that, you're not going to find that in chronometer because that kind of evidence is not there. So you have to, but this is in my book. There's, we've got all that kind of data and the data on, um, you know, uh, non-corn and soy fed chicken and 
uh, pork, pigs, ver you know, versus ancestrally raised chicken and pigs, for example. So all those things need to be taken into consideration if you're trying to get, you know, very low in your omega-6 linoleic acid. And I think it's critically important to do this. It's the most important thing you can do for your health. Yeah, I found the graph in your book. It says <clears throat> in the ancestral eggs, quote unquote, which is coming from Angel Acres, you have 176 milligrams of linoleic acid per egg. And then pasture-raised egg, 465 milligrams of linoleic acid per egg, a cage-free egg, 585 milligrams of linoleic acid per egg, and a CAFO egg, 734 milligrams of linoleic acid per egg. Does that sound right, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. So significantly different depending on what type of, um, what type of egg you are eating and, and what the chickens are eating. Now, the intention is not to make it impossible for people to eat any food. The intention is just to share knowledge. And this is also why I tend to avoid chicken fat and pork fat from chickens and pigs that are fed corn and soy. The same thing happens in all monogastric animals. Humans are monogastric animals. We accumulate polyunsaturated fatty acids, and it takes two to three years to turn over our fat stores and change the amount of linoleic acid in our fat, and so do chickens and pigs. So a lot of people love bacon. Bacon is great, and I know I'll get comments on this podcast, people saying, I'm never going to give up eating my bacon. Great. Eat your bacon. <laughs> I'm just giving you information. Knowledge is power. Do no better. Do better. But um, if you're eating bacon, chances are, unless you raise that pig, that, that, that pork fat can have a significant amount of linoleic acid in it. I think I've seen numbers more than 10% or maybe even 15% of that pork fat can be linoleic acid versus a wild pig or hog um, which has around 4 to 5% linoleic acid. I've shared those data in the past. The same thing happens with chickens. Chicken fat can get very enriched in linoleic acid, 15 plus percent, 20% linoleic acid versus a wild chicken, which I don't see that much, perhaps in Hawaii, 4 to 5% linoleic acid. So it's very interesting and it comes at us from all angles as humans. Again, start with, start with seed oils, start with what's in your food from restaurants. I know a lot of people eat the majority of their food from restaurants. So know what's in your food. Then think about nuts and seeds and or the quality of the meats you're eating. This is why I'm a big fan of ruminant animals like beef, bison, goat, sheep, lamb. Because if the animals are ruminant, if it has cloven hooves, then it can, doesn't accumulate linoleic acid in the same way. So even if a cow is fed grains, which is not ideal, it will still have around 2% linoleic acid in its fat because these animals can interconvert. They can saturate polyunsaturated fats, remove double bonds. We can't do that. Pigs can't do that. Chickens can't do that. And so this is interesting in the food chain. And this reminds me of a, an interesting um, picture that you have in your book, Chris, that I'll show here. Yeah. So the there's we're looking at the reason we're looking at this slide is because it and I'm I'm think I'm pausing here uh, Paul because I'm thinking about the people that would just be listening to this so we have a picture of a a little boy who I don't know he must be you know seven or eight years old or something like that who's smoking a cigarette which is you know we would all just we would you know almost any parent or anybody would uh, would would be stopped dead in their tracks if they saw that. Um, and then to the to the right of that, we see a little tiny boy who's probably two, who's you know roughly um, who's you know eating from a big plate of uh, French fries. And of course, you know everybody would think that that you know the the kid eating the French fries is that's kind of normal. We just think of that as as rather normal. 
But the um, but both of these, the cigarette cigarettes, when you burn them, when you burn tobacco, you produce a chemical called acrolein. Well, guess what? That's one of those advanced lipid oxidation end products, and it happens to be the same advanced lipid oxidation end product that ends up in vegetable oil, and because primarily because that oil is either you know especially when it's heated, but also you will produce that. Um, in your body, you know, because you can break that, those can break down into acrylate. Well, so now I don't remember specifically the exact numbers, Paul, here, but, but the, you know, the evidence shows that you know, like a large French fries, this came from Martin Greutfeld's re research, who looked at, you know, heated oils that comes from restaurants. If you take a large French fries that's cooked in that prolonged, prolonged heated oil, um, that will contain about one to one and a half milligrams of acrolein. Again, now acrolein is the toxicant of cigarette smoke, which is considered the most carcinogenic and toxic part of the cigarette, you know, what you're getting from the cigarette. Okay, so one to one and a half milligrams. So I did the math on this, and it turns out that the acrolein in a, a large French fries is the equivalent of smoking. 18 to 26 average cigarettes or up to 97 cigarettes that are lowest in acrolein. So, but the, but, and back to the first picture. So the, the point is, so cigarettes, basically they cause harm. We think, you know, primarily because they're of their oxidative potential. Now they're, you get these toxicants like acrolein and all these other chemicals, but they, but their primary harm probably comes from oxidation. But that ends at about six months after you stop smoking. So, so I mean, it'd probably be a very short time if you just smoked a few cigarettes, right? But, but when you consume French fries, those oils are going to deposit in your body fat unless you can burn it right away that day. You're, they're going to be deposited in your body fat. And we know that ultimately, as we've talked about, that whatever you consume, whatever fatty acids you consume, in your diet will be reflected in your body fat. And that takes three years to turn over. So what I showed here is that this little tiny boy is poisoned for three years after consuming this big plate of French fries, right? So if it were up to me, um, I think that smoking is fantastically safer than consuming vegetable oils, especially heated vegetable oils like you get in fast food restaurants that, you know, where they're cooking these, you know, the French fries in these oils that have been heated for days. So perhaps we'll just clarify that I don't think you're advocating for smoking. It's just, we're drawing the comparison. <laughs> just a comparison. No, I'm a, you know, I'm very, you know, I've always been wanted to be very healthy and fit and all that. I was, I grew up as an athlete. I've always considered myself athletic. And, um, but, but the point is, is that you know, modern medicine teaches us, right, Paul, that, you know, in medical school, we're taught that, you know, the really bad things are just smoking and drinking and uh, maybe not getting any exercise. And that's about it, right? They don't, you know, there's no talk at all about the diet or any of this, right? And I'm just drawing the, the you know, the connection here, the parallel, the, the comparison, maybe I should say, that consuming vegetable oils, to me, is fantastically more dangerous than smoking cigarettes because you know again you're accumulating these oils in your entire body and setting up your entire body for this pro-oxidative pro-inflammatory toxic environment 
Yeah. And I remember in my life, when I smoked my first cigarette, I must have been 12 years old. And I was with my friends who were skaters and they were a bad influence on me. I was also a skater. I wore airwalks and skids pants and I learned to Ollie. And I don't think I ever did a kickflip, but I tried. And uh, I, I smoked a cigarette. And ironically, I also ate a hamburger from McDonald's at the same time. Yeah. And, and then I smoked half of another one later in the day. And I midway through the second cigarette, I thought, I don't want to be a smoker. And I threw it away and I never smoked another cigarette. But my family would always give me junk food. And I don't think that they were negligent. It's just they didn't know any better, even though my father is a physician. We had TV dinners and he would buy me burgers and I'm sure I ate fries. And if I told my family that I had French fries for lunch with my dad, and I told them that I smoked a cigarette with my friends who were skaters, they would be much more mortified about the cigarette than they would about the French fries. And this is just our gap in knowledge as humans and how many of us feed these foods to our children or don't know that these things are in our foods. And how ironic also, Chris, and I've done some content on this, that almost every baby formula I've ever seen in the grocery store, even those that are marketed as healthy or alternative or goat milk formulas contain seed oils because we are trying to match the amount of linoleic acid in the breast milk of mothers. Well, imagine that if we're eating more linoleic acid and our fat contains more linoleic acid, then our breast milk contains more linoleic acid. So I believe there are studies about this. You may know the breast milk of American mothers is very different in linoleic acid content than that of indigenous pregnant nursing mothers. Isn't that correct? Absolutely. It's, it's a, a lot higher. I don't remember the numbers. I don't know if you know those offhand, Paul, but, but the number, but just like everything else, the linoleic acid goes way up in, uh, in monogastric, uh, animals or humans. Um, when we consume more omega-6, it goes up, it goes much higher in the breast milk. But again, so how, yeah. but, but in the comparison, but even that breast milk would is so much healthier than than uh, these formulas. In fact, in the formulas, you know, they're um, even ones that would start out with uh, with milk. They're removing or or powdered milk, whatever. They're removing the um, the uh, butter or any you know, natural animal fats that might be in there, and they're replacing those with vegetable oil. Um, you know, I know Sally Fallon from the Weston A. Price Foundation said many years ago that I remember her saying that um, formula is the single most processed food on the planet. This is what we're starting our kids off with. And, and we wonder, I remember, and I, I think about, you know, um, a number of years ago that Robert Lustig said, well, any hypothesis that you want to proffer um, about obesity needs to explain why we have obesity in our infants nowadays. I mean, they don't diet and they don't exercise was his argument. Why are they obese and why are they so fat? And here's exactly why the first thing we're giving them. So many mothers are not, they're also not even breastfeeding. And the first thing they give them is formula. And the formula is made out of vegetable oils and sugar and maybe some refined flours, and then they just throw in a bunch of, uh, uh, you know, minerals and some vitamins. That's what it is. It's single most processed. I agree with Sally Fallon. Single most processed food there is, and this is exactly why, you know, we're we're you know, you know we're causing um, we're causing obesity in our infants and our toddlers because of this is how we start them off eating. And there is 
research correlating linoleic acid consumption in mothers and levels of obesity in children. So this, oh. is, this has all been documented, that yeah. moms who eat more linoleic acid have more obese kids. Again, it's a lot of correlations, but I think that the correlations are so numerous <laughs> and so strong that we cannot ignore this. And I, I guess the point of all this is just that I hope that really tight research will be done in the future so we can put this issue to rest because there are confusions and people will say it's correlation, it's not causation. Exactly. We need to do some solid, solid research to really prove how horrible these are for humans. I've talked on previous podcasts about all the interventional studies in the past, Minnesota coronary, LA veterans. I'm not, I don't think we need to belabor that point on this podcast, but again, the seed oil discussion is, is complex. So one thing that I don't think you and I have talked about on a previous podcast is cardiolipin, Chris, and I, I want to make sure we cover this. And then I know um, our time is dwindling. And after that, I want to make sure we get to Japan and, and, and really talk about some of the most compelling epidemiology we have looking at sugar versus seed oils in terms of driving obesity. But let's start with cardiolipin. What is it? Why does it matter? And, and how does this play into the linoleic acid story? Yeah, sure. So, um, so cardiolipin is a, um, it, it, uh, is a type of molecule that, ex that primarily exists in the inner mitochondrial membranes. And it is a, it is a molecule that contains four, what are called acyl tails. These are fatty acid tails that, um, that they vary a little bit depending on what organ they come from. But if you look at the, in the, in the heart, they generally come from linoleic acid, interestingly enough. But this cardiolipin is is um, it, it has to uh, interdigitate with other molecules of cardiolipin in the inner mitochondrial membrane in order to hold um, uh, the proton um, charge essentially. So when we create energy, we have to in our inner mitochondria, our powerhouses of our cells, we have to create energy. Um, through ATP. And the way we do that is we first build a proton gradient inside the inner mitochondrial membrane. And those protons, which are basically hydrogen atoms, they have to be held in place um, through this membrane that's solid. And But if you consume a high omega-6 diet, what happens is, is this begins what I call a catastrophic lipid peroxidation cascade. And one of the things that gets oxidized in that is the linoleic acid that is in the cardiolipin. And then the, those tails can no longer fit together properly because either the LA is oxidized or when it's oxidized, it'll be replaced by other molecules like DHA or which is di, uh, docosahexaenoic acid or arachidonic acid, AA. And either way, if they're replaced, now those molecules don't fit together properly. They have this 3D conformational change. And now you have, you can create pores leaky spots in that inner mitochondrial membrane where the hydrogen protons can leak through. And if they leak through, now they can no longer create energy because they normally are going to come through the ATP synthase and that, that hydrogen proton is going to provide the energy to phosphorylate ADP to ATP. Now you've lost that. And so this is where, and, the, and we know this happens. We know that the uh, on a very short-term diet of high, high omega-6 in um, rodents, that the cardiolipin will go down, to, uh, but, you know, but to one tenth of I think it's one tenth or one fifth of what it was. Um, so it's destroyed, really. And in the process, 
um, you destroy the energy making um, uh, capability of the mitochondria because you've, you've broken down the electron transport chain, which is where all this exists. Now that's a very complicated to try to explain without images and all that, but there's a mechanism behind this that all makes sense. And when you, so when you, when you cause this energy failure in this way, when the cell can't properly make energy, the cell begins to fall apart. We need energy to do all cellular functions there, there are, right? And this is, I think, you know, n number one is, is now, you, now you've paralyzed cellular um, processes. You also cannot properly burn fat for fuel is what I believe. And then you're, and so then you'd actually begin to store you know, lipid droplets in the cell that can no longer properly be burned for fuel because they can't be, they can't run through the, you know, the Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain properly. So this may be one of the reasons that we see, you know, these lipid droplet, droplets accumulating in the liver and in the, you know, in the retina and in the brain and all that, um, you know, we're wondering why all this is, but I, but I think it's, you know, ultimately toxicity from the high omega-6 diets that's driving this so that's the that's basically the story of cardiolipin and there's there is definitely more detail that you know we get into there's there is another proposed mechanism um, for this but the bottom line is we know that cardiolipin is 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 it there's a destructive process to cardiolipin in high omega-6 diets and that will create energy failure and it will create things like congestive heart failure in three weeks of a high omega-6 diet in animals. And isn't there evidence that when babies are born, their cardiolipin looks different than it does in most westernized adults in terms of the population, like in terms of these four acyl tails and the amount of linoleic acid that, that as we age, it can become enriched in linoleic acid and people that are eating more high linoleic acid diets. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that in specifically in comparing comparing babies to uh to adults or 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 whatever. I don't know the answer to that, Paul. Maybe I heard Tucker talk about that. I'll have to circle back to Tucker Goodrich, but I feel like we talked about that on a previous podcast with Tucker Goodrich and the fact that like the fact that if you look at a baby's cardiolipin, it's it's very different than a westernized adult's cardiolipin in terms of the population of the linoleic acid in those tails. And so it, it's interesting because this represents a potential mechanism by which linoleic acid may be causing problems at the level of mitochondria and these inner membranes. Mitochondria have two membranes. They, the story that many people believe is that mitochondria are these primordial bacteria that some sort of cell engulfed and, and they've become symbiotic with us. They're symbionts now and they, that's why they have two membranes. And anyway, this is where uh, the, the foods that were broken, that are eaten are broken down essentially you know, the nutrients from the foods are translated into actual usable energy for humans at the level of mitochondria. So something that disrupts this inner mitochondrial membrane could cause massive problems for, for humans at a lot of different levels. And there's, there's compelling evidence for this. I'll also add that we don't have to go into this today, but the animal literature with linoleic acid is almost incontrovertible. <laughs> it's unequivocal that, that linoleic acid is harmful for animals. Um, unfortunately it's much more difficult to do controlled studies in humans, but if you look at rats and mice, it's, it's very, very clear that feeding rats and mice higher linoleic acid diets leads to all sorts of problems, uh, myriad issues in these animals with these, um, 
as I said earlier, some of the interventional studies with linoleic acid in humans are confounded by problems with the control groups. Nobody has done an interventional study with linoleic acid in the last 50 to 60 years, as far as I'm aware. Is that, isn't that true, Chris? Like no one's actually repeated any of those studies. Absolutely. And, and, and in my way of viewing this, Paul, I think that, that these studies will never, ever, ever be done, in my view, because, you know, the longest studies I've ever seen where, they, where diets were completely controlled were six months. You tell me if you see a, a diet, because again, you've got to put these people into a metabolic ward. You've got to control everything they eat. Um, it's got to be, you know, tracked, measured. It's extraordinarily expensive. Um, and I haven't seen one that tracked, you know, a, an entire diet for more than six months. Most of them are just a few weeks at most. This is in, in people. Um, so, I mean, all these other studies, you know, they tried to change one thing, like the, like the, you know, the ones you've mentioned, the LA American veterans trial, the Minnesota coronary survey, and the, you know, they try to change one thing about the diet, but you know, you've got all you know, a million confounders really in all those two. And you're starting off with all these studies, you're starting off with people that already have, like, if you take a bunch of 40, you know, year old, you know, male Americans, and you try to randomize them, well, you're going to have people with really high omega-6 in their diet. Um, and you're going to have people with really low potentially like you and me, right? And, but that takes three years you know, for, before you actually change the most important thing, which is the omega-6 in your body fat and in your cell membrane, right? So it's just like if you took, you're trying to figure out what causes lung cancer and you take people that, you know, you, you take a, a, a group from um, all of which were smokers, right? But some just smoked more than others, right? And now you randomize them into different groups and run a trial for a couple, a few years, right? What can you learn from that? And this is why I am so invested in the evidence that comes from observational studies. That's what these are that I do primarily. I look at what's happened in people in populations um, over very long periods of time. It's really what Weston Price did. It's observational, but you can you can look at you know the the data as a whole. For the entire population, like in our case, for up to 150 years, and um, and then look at what happened to those people in terms of outcomes. And there's you're never going to see this happen, you know, with uh, with any control long term randomized controlled clinical clinical trials. And if you did, you know, then you have the problem of that most of these a lot of these conditions that we're intensely interested in cardiovascular disease, you know, stroke, a lot of the cancers, um, macular degeneration, they, the incubation period for these diseases is four decades and longer, right? How many people do we see have heart attacks before age 40 or macular degeneration before age 40? How about Alzheimer's disease? So in other words, if, you, if you're going to run, run these studies, you need to run them for four decades. And you're going to have to completely control their diets is the way I see it. Cost. So, you know, we don't even, the LA American Veterans Trial, the Minnesota Coronary Survey, you got people coming in and out of the trials, you control one thing, you control some of the fat, um, you know, and I think, and, and, now, and then you're trying to base your, you know, your, your, your decision making based on very limited evidence with, and you have no idea the background of all these people, you know, uh, coming into these studies that is extremely important. Um, so, 
I, I just, that's why I don't put a lot of, I, I, you know, there's just constant talk about all these studies and they just, the problem is, is the reason there is, is that most of them don't answer the question very well and they're never going to. It's very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. But I think that this, if I simplify it in my mind, most of us agree that quote unquote processed foods are probably the major driver of chronic illness in humans. The problem is that processed foods is kind of this hand-waving, non-specific term. What is a processed food? What is not a processed food? Processed foods tend to contain multiple ingredients, which could potentially be driving problems in humans. And this will wrap us into a discussion of Japan in a moment. So I was recently in Los Angeles and I had the chance to hang out with a, um, a friend of mine, surprisingly, who's plant-based. And um, he and I will hopefully do a podcast at some point in the future and, and go back and forth and share our different opinions. His name is Simon Hill. And, and so we got to work out together at Gold's Gym in Venice. And it was about 30% working out and about 70% talking about studies between sets. Um, and it was probably two and a half hours of us talking. It wasn't recorded for people that are curious, but hopefully we will record something like that soon. I think that um, it's interesting. But one of my takeaways was that both Simon and I agree very clearly that processed foods are problematic for humans. And I'm interested in understanding what part of processed foods is, is harmful for humans so that we can scale that and give people something to really look for. If people just get rid of processed foods, their health will improve hands down. And, and it's, it's kind of like, you know what a processed food is. Bag, you know, labels, it's a cake, it's a cookie, it's candies, it's crackers. It's, it's just processed foods. It's not something on the outside of the grocery store. It's not a piece of fruit. It's not a vegetable. It's not a meat. Uh, it's not tallow or butter or milk or cheese. Mostly everything else that I haven't listed are processed foods. And, and people might want to split hairs there. But what's interesting to me is that two of the main ingredients in processed foods that people point to are sugar and seed oils. And so I think that all of the ingredients in processed foods, refined grains, flours, seed oils, sugars, potentially preservatives, glyphosate, gums, need to be considered for their potential to cause human harm. But if we just look at those two ingredients, sugar and seed oils, those are the two that I think stick out the most to me. And a lot of people will point to sugar as problematic for humans. As I've spoken about in the past, there are a couple of definitions of sugar, whether we're talking about sucrose, cane sugar, or high fructose corn syrup. But some of this work that you've done, Chris, I think is, is quite compelling and very interesting looking at this epidemiology, this observational research in places like Japan, but I think Japan and China are good examples of this, and looking at patterns of sugar consumption versus seed oil consumption, and then trying to correlate that with chronic illness. So you want to walk us through this? And I'll try and pull yeah. up some slides here. Yeah, let's just leave that one there. And then I'll mention some other things that, you know, that we'll talk about. So, all right. So, so for those people that are just listening, um, this, is, uh, this is Japan's nutrition transition. And I think Japan is incredibly important for us to evaluate in terms of the, um, all of their foodstuffs and the outcomes of uh, uh, in terms of uh, obesity, uh, overweight, and chronic disease. And um, I'm going to I'm going to mention some numbers here that aren't necessarily on this slide, but this is between if we just look at between approximately 1960 and 2004, um, 
um, the uh, first of all, the uh, the total calories went way down, went down 31% during this time in Japan. The carbohydrate consumption, which was 84% in 1960 when the, the nation was phenomenally healthy, went down to 56%. Um, by 2004. So that went down, carbohydrates went down 28%. Um, now, sugar was about was 198 calories in 1961. I think, and I don't have this number exactly, but it peaked around 329 calories in 1989. And then it trended downwards, down to 283 calories by about 2004, is what happened with sugar. So sugar has been going down since since 1989 but but and the saturated fat just so everybody knows is the lowest in the developed world at seven percent in japan uh, even recently that's their that's the recent numbers um seed oils however they went up between 1960 and 2004 333 that's 4.33 fold they went from nine grams a day in 1961 to 39 grams a day um in 2004 all right so so let me just to 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 just uh broadly look at this calories are going down carbohydrates are going down sugars are going down after 1989 but the one thing going up is the vegetable oils and the omega-6 and we'll come back to the omega-6 in a minute all right so during this time we see that obesity male obesity doubled it went from 16% in 1978 to 31.2% um, in 2010. Breast cancer went up about fivefold between just between 1975 and 1999. Um, four cancers went up multifold in Japan, four different cancers. Um, I don't remember exactly what those are. I don't have that handy. Diabetes went up between 1954 and 2007, diabetes went up 345 fold, went from 0.02% um, in 1954 to 6.9% in 2007. So 345 fold increase in diabetes. Macular degeneration went up 82 fold, went from 0.2% between 1975 and 1999 up to 16.37% in 2013. That's an 82-fold increase. So, but look at this, ladies and gentlemen, this is that you can see that the omega-6 was 1% of the calories back in 1960, 1961, when they, when the seed oils were only nine grams a day, right? Um, and we end up at 7.8% by two, uh, 2009. So the omega-6 went up 7.8 fold, right? So, so again, um, I think that's in Incredibly important to evaluate that. That's in the again. The, what better? How could you design design a study any better than that? It's the I think it's the perfect study, and it you know it covers uh, you know roughly a 50, 60 year period. It's it's com it's very compelling correlations, and we didn't show other countries, but in your book you list the United States. Maybe I'll pull up the China graph here in a moment, which looks pretty similarly. These correlations are not just in Japan. It happens everywhere. And again, correlation is not causation, people will say, and it's true, but it's enough for us to say this is very concerning. This same sort of correlation between 
um, increased amount of omega-6 from seed oils, increasing all of our illnesses is happening. And in many countries, you see sugar declining while all of those diseases are, are occurring. And so I'm not advocating for high fructose corn syrup at all. That's different. I've spoken about that on other podcasts. I'm not convinced that sucrose is the worst thing in the world for humans. But, and I'm not advocating for that either because I think there is a problem of, uh, you know, there's not a lot of nutrients in, in high fructose corn syrup or in sucrose. But, but it just, I think it begs an interesting question, which is what is the real driver here? And I think that's important, important to really point out. All right, so I wanted to pull up China as well to compare so that people can see that these, these correlations occur in multiple countries. You want to walk through this one real quick, Chris, and then we'll wrap up for you? Yeah, absolutely. All right, so, so I think China is incredibly important to look at as well because um, they have um, exceedingly low sugar consumption. It is the eighth lowest sugar consumption in the world. And anybody who, if, if you're looking at this graph or, or if you're not, I'll describe it, but you can see that sugar is in the green curve there. And it, it has been ranging from about 60 to 80 calories per day in China since about 1980s. And uh, so that's, that is um, two and a half percent of their calories on average. So it's virtually just almost negligible, right? And it's not changing. And, uh, but you can see that the vegetable oils in China have increased from uh, 30 calories per day, which would be three grams, essentially, 3.1 or 3.2 grams back in 1961 in the blue curve there, right? And goes all the way up to, so by 2018, vegetable oils were 204 calories per day. So, so vegetable oils went up sevenfold during this time frame of approximately, this is almost, you're pushing 60 years here, right? This is like 57 years or so, right? Well, so what, what happened to them? Well, if you're looking at the graph, you can see that they're overweight and obesity. That is the red curve. And uh, uh, the combined overweight and obesity climbed from a total of 15.3% uh, back in 1991, uh, I think it was. Um, all the way to combined total of 42% overweight and obese um, by around 2014, I think it is. Um, and then their cancer incidence, um, basically, this is, uh, again, this is incidence, um, increased from 495 per 100,000 back in about 1991 up to 1,587 um, per 100,000 uh, by uh, 2017, I think it was. And uh, so, so, that, uh, so the cancer, it went up 3.2-fold. Obesity went up threefold. Um, and a couple other things I'll mention that are not on this graph. Um, cardiovascular disease went up 15% just between 1990 and 2017. And very interestingly, lung cancer went up 465% while the smoking went from 20 smoking prevalence went from 27%. I'm pretty sure it was down to 20%. And I'm almost dead sure those numbers are correct, but 
as we've talked about before, and Tucker Goodrich talked about several years ago, is that you know there there was the concern about smoking and or, or lack of smoking and lung cancer in China. This is it. This is what you're seeing right here. Even all these cancers go up in the face of higher omega six consumption. In this case, come you know it's coming again, once again coming from the vegetable oils as you see right here. And Chris, did I read in your book? or maybe it was somewhere else, maybe it was in one of Tucker's blogs, but that in countries where there is no seed oil consumption, there is no correlation between smoking and lung cancer. Have you, have you heard this? I've, I have witnessed, you know, the, the, the equivalent of that multiple times. Um, Weston Price talked a lot about the fact that the, um, the population of Scotland and the Outer Hebrides that lived in those smoke-filled huts that they lived, they were exposed to this smoke day in because they didn't use chimneys. They let the smoke pour into their their hut, they huts, and they they just removed the thatch roofs every summer, and they used it as fertilizer. But anyway, um, they weren't getting lung disease. They weren't getting tuberculosis anyway, and uh, there was no evidence that they were getting lung cancer. The Pacific Islanders, very interestingly, um, some of those they smoke like crazy down there, and yet in those populations. Like the Papua New Guineans, they would get pneumonia, but there was there's no discussion of them having COPD or lung cancer. I haven't seen any evidence of that at all, and yet they they smoke like crazy. So again, I think you know when you have a uh, an ancestrally appropriate diet and you avoid vegetable oils and you're consuming lots of nutrients, you're very very well protected from cancer and. Um, you know, I, uh, I think Georgie Dinkoff mentioned this to you that it's, and I've seen the same thing. There, are every single, all of these, uh, these cancer researchers, they know if they want to create cancer in a laboratory animal, they can't, they generally cannot just give them a carcinogen like DMBA or irradiate them. They need to give them the higher omega-6 diet. Otherwise, they cannot write, reliably produce cancer at all. So you've got to get that omega six up, and you need to get it above four point four percent in the diet. And all, and, and that's what all westernized countries are above that threshold. They're all above that, all of them. Yeah, as we mentioned earlier, the animal studies are very, very concerning, and and I think the parallels for humans are are, are very likely there. <laughs> but um, the cancer connection, the cardiovascular disease connection, and with Tucker and Jeff, I talked a lot about cardiovascular disease and LDL and its propensity to oxidize when you're eating more linoleic acid. I mean, there's so many things we didn't have a chance to talk about today, but um, thanks for coming on the podcast, Chris. Thank you for your work. Where can people find more of your stuff and get the book? Yeah, Paul, thank you for having me on. Um, so, um, so you, first of all, you can get the book, The Ancestral Diet Revolution, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, almost wherever books are sold online. Um, we do. We ha have two foundations: Cure AMD Foundation and Ancestral Health Foundation. Um, that's those are CureAMD.org and AncestralHealthFoundation.org. The latter of those is in the works, so uh, that that won't be available immediately, but will be soon. The Ancestral Health Foundation website. We do also have Facebook pages and Instagram pages for those, and. Um, and you can see me on, on podcasts like this. <laughs> That's basically it, Paul. All right. Well, thank you, man. It's good to see you again. And I hope thank that you. Uh, you. 
I hope that uh, I hope that eventually a lot of people hear about this and turn the tide. What's What's encouraging for me is that when I'm out in the in the world these days traveling, um, some people see me and they say, "Hey, you're the meat guy," but other people see me and they go, "Seed oils are bullshit." And so <laughs> it's making an impact. You know, I was at Erewhon in Los Angeles. I'm doing a, a smoothie with them next month in July. We're launching the smoothie July seventh at Erewhon in Los Angeles. It's a carnivore. It's like, a, it's not a carnivore, but it's like an animal-based raw smoothie with raw kefir and a bunch of fruit and honey. It's really going to be good. And I was in the parking lot of Erewhon talking to a friend and in the span of 15 minutes, at least six people walked by and said, Hey, what's up, man? I love your work. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. But uh, multiple people drove by in their cars and said like, seed oils, get rid of the seed oils, fuck seed oils. And I thought, wow, it's the message is getting out. People are getting it. So that's uh, pretty cool. So thanks it for the all, work you it do. It all yeah. starts with with a yeah, small man. group of committed people, right? Yeah. A small yeah, group of committed people can change the whole world. And that's what, you know, that's what we're doing. We're doing this together. Right? So I appreciate it, Paul. You're doing such fabulous work all the time. So I, I, my hat's off to you all the time. Thank you, Chris. Good to see you. you. And until Good next time. You,